Welcome to the Social Policy Connections audio podcast. The following podcast features a lecture delivered by Professor Tillman Ruff, Chair of the Australian Board of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. The talk was presented to Social Policy Connections on March the 29th, 2011 at the Study Centre of Yarra Theological Union. If you'd like to attend one of our events, refer to our website at www.socialpolicyconnections.org.au. Please feel free to subscribe to our podcasts via iTunes or via an RSS feed located on our website's home page, as we will be publishing podcasts regularly free of charge. Professor Tillman Ruff is the immediate past president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Australia, and a member of the Board of Directors of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. He is one of two invited NGO advisors to the co-chairs of the International Commission on Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament. And now, Professor Tillman Ruff with his lecture entitled Nuclear Disarmament, The Great Challenge. Thanks very much, uh, Peter and Bill and others, for the invitation to to speak with you this evening about a, a topic that I obviously uh, feel is incredibly important, at, at, and particularly at this at this historic moment. Um, I guess I come to this from several perspectives, and I'll and I'll share some rather personal ones with you this evening, um, as well as I guess a sense of of the urgency and importance of, of, of the issue, which I think has, has slipped somewhat in, in many people's consciousness. Um, as, a pub, as a physician, there's one of the profound responsibilities that one has professionally, ethically, personally, is not just to to, um, to treat the sick and prevent suffering, but, but to try and, and, and avoid, uh, to prevent, uh, particularly things that we have no capacity uh, to treat. Um, and I think nuclear weapons are really very much in that category. Uh, the spectacular success of, of um, disease eradication to date, the single example of that is smallpox shown here. Um, for me, nuclear weapons are really the same kind of universal scourge. We've seen some in the Australian political sphere, some important positive developments, uh, signs when the right government came to office in 2007 of some real interest and potential for leadership on this issue, for example, uh, then Shadow Foreign Minister, now Attorney General Robert McClellan was convinced that Australia, that the idea of a global abolition treaty to abolish nuclear weapons, the same kind of approach as had been successful and effective in for every other uh, class of indiscriminate and inhumane weapon that we were in the process of abolishing, um, was a comprehensive treaty approach. He was convinced that the same approach was applicable nuclear weapons, and that really is uh, the centrepiece of, of really ICANN's um, advocacy. But relatively soon thereafter, we saw that sort of muted to the point of um, really disappearing off the horizon of political priority with this sort of heavily qualified statement that the government you know, supports exploration of possible legal framework for the eventual abolition of nuclear weapons, including at an appropriate time. The possibility of negotiation of a nuclear weapons convention, and it's a long-term goal. 
I mean, that's code for, you know, park it here. <laughs> it's not the language of urgency, of priority. Um, and unfortunately, that was, that was a, a great regret. Um, one of the things that we've seen uh, particularly starkly demonstrated with events in Japan in the last week is really that um, even though nuclear weapons haven't been prominent in the discussion and the reflection that that um, catastrophe, still evolving, still unstable, has promoted, um, but I think very much there are aspects of new technology that are, that are common and there are intersections between however we use this technology that, that, that we have to grapple with. Um, in a sense, I guess, you could argue that whether um, introducing technology this powerful, essentially the, the technology that, that powers the stars uh, in, a, in our frail, ordinary, error-prime, interconnected world is a wise and responsible stewardship um, for creation is, uh, or whether it's really blasphemy is, uh, is for me a pretty profound question. Um, and in lots of ways I find Arundhati Roy, the Indian writer, extraordinarily insightful and compelling. And for me this, um, this quote of hers from a number of years ago um, in a piece that she wrote in response to uh, the, the Indian initiation of nuclear tests for the second time, um, that was of course within weeks followed by Pakistan, uh, really summarises a lot of it, and I'll just read it for you. The nuclear bomb is the most anti-democratic, anti-human, outright evil thing that man has ever made. If you're religious, then remember that this bomb is man's challenge to God. It's worded quite simply, we have the power to destroy everything that you have created. If you're not religious, then look at it this way. This world of ours is 4,600 million years old and could end in an afternoon. And really, both through nuclear weapons and through climate change, this and perhaps the previous generation, but, but this ch existential challenge to the very capacity of the planet that sustains and nurtures us to, uh, to bear our uh, assaults upon it um, is a very profound challenge that we'll have uh, how we, we address this and whether we can resolve these two interrelated challenges is really the, I think, the defining uh, question for humanity of this or probably any age. Um, for me, the, the issue of stewardship and our responsibilities to the, to the next generation is, is profoundly important in this matter because when we introduce nuclear technology, whether it's um, whatever form it's in, we're essentially bequeathing that without the important principle of informed consent or intergenerational justice necessarily um, to essentially all subsequent future generations to have to manage. Uh, they're going to have to, our children, our grandchildren, now, etc., will have to manage the legacy of, of nuclear weapons and waste, um, whether they like it or not. That's a matter that's not that's not of, of choice. So for me, the responsibilities as a parent um, to try and, and make a healthier and safer world for my children is uh, is apart from my professional responsibility, a pretty important one. Um, and medically, the, the probably the most important um, 
statement that the world's largest and peak technical agency, the World Health Organization, made, and particularly the World Health Assembly, that's the body of, of health ministers or their representatives that, that um, manages WHO, was, was really some decades ago now, but really at the height of the Cold War, on the basis of a couple of very authoritative reports, clearly stating that nuclear weapons constitute the greatest immediate threat to health and welfare. And really, there's not much that's changed since that time that would um, that you know, would invalidate that that assessment. Um, one of the the subtitle for this evening's talk was, "Well, what can NGOs do?" And I guess more broadly, what can civil society do? And I'll finish with some recommendations um, and suggestions for you. But I'd also like to just, in, in passing, note that for me, being on this sort of thirty-year journey of of grappling with these issues, um, there has been progress, and in some respects it's been quite significant. Uh, nuclear tests have almost stopped, the number of nuclear weapons is reduced by almost two-thirds. We don't have civil defence programs against nuclear war in the, in the mis completely mistaken belief that we're offering a utility that costs you know, vast amounts of money every year. We hear very few people talking about nuclear war as being survivable or winnable. Um, there's been a whole lot of steps made to abolish whole classes of weapons that have been effective. We have an international legal opinion from the highest legal authority in the world that says that there's not just an obligation to, to negotiate disarmament in good faith, but to achieve it. It's a legally binding obligation. There's been some real progress, and I think much of that has come through, through concerned individuals working together in a coordinated way. So for me, this has also been a very encouraging story. Um, and for example, I think NW winning the Nobel Peace Prize within just five years of its formation was, was recognition of, of, of the importance of, of that work. And some of the statements made by political leaders at that time, particularly the role that physicians played in ending the Cold War and convincing Mikhail Gorbachev um, that uh, really nuclear disarmament was essential. A lot of the background that led to those landmark summits where he and President Reagan seriously discussed to the absolute um, <coughs> dismay of their advisors the possibility of, of eliminating all the nuclear weapons within a couple of decades. Um, that was very heavily contributed to by civil society. Um, there are some physical realities that underpin nuclear technology, nuclear weapons that I I think it's worth just, just reflecting upon because it's really the physical and biological realities, the humanitarian consequences of these things, particularly when used, but even if not, that I think has to be the basis for where we start. Arcane arguments about deterrence and about numbers and about political strategy uh, really, I think, appropriately should fall away when you think about what the consequences of any use of these weapons actually is. And Nuclear technology is different from other kinds of technology, not just quantitatively, but qualitatively. Um, fissile materials, highly enriched uranium and plutonium have um, half-lives for plutonium, 24,400 years, for uranium, much longer. These materials are essentially around, around forever, much longer than, than the longevity of any human institution or the capacity of any of us to predict to predict what might happen. And so I think it's very important to argue, to approach this issue on the basis that 
this risk is so profound that, that it must be prevented at all costs and that it's not a fact of who owns the weapons, it's a fact of the weapons themselves. Um, let me just give you a couple of examples about these, this time frame. Plutonium I mentioned is one of the most toxic uh, radioactive poisons that we know. It's essentially purely of human origin. It doesn't exist in the, in the natural world, at least not on Earth. Its half-life is 24,400 years. That's four times since as long as since writing was invented. It's half as long in one half-life um, since settled agriculture. Um, and it's only a little bit less than since Neanderthals still were walking on, on the planet. That's one half-life. Um, so material that's around now will only be reduced to a thousandth of its current amount in a quarter of a million years. These time frames are simply not ones that are within the capacity of human prediction or, or the longevity of any social institution. Um, the weapons that, that were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were relatively small weapons. By today's standards, would be considered relatively small tactical size weapons. Um, there's a whole diversity of effects of, of the weapons that I won't go through in detail, but I particularly want to just flag um, the insidious nature of ionising radiation. And, and again, um, in stark relief because of recent events in Japan, which, which are not over yet. But these two relatively small weapons, um, 15 and about 20 kilotons, thousands of tons of TNT equivalent in explosive power, and it killed about a quarter of a million people by the end of, of 1945. And essentially, um, if these were used on any scale on, on Earth, it would, it would really literally bring the power that drives stars much bigger than our own sun uh, on, onto our, our rather small planet. Ionizing radiation is particularly harmful, not because it's a, an extraordinary amount of energy, because the energy is packaged in a form and can be delivered to living tissues in a way that's particularly damaging to the large complex molecules that are fundamental to how we work, and most importantly the DNA that's the, our most important inheritance from our parents and our ancestors and the most important legacy that we pass on to our children that more than anything else physically defines, defines who we are. A lethal dose of radioactivity may contain no more energy than the, than the heat in a cup of coffee. It's not a particularly large amount of energy. It's just that it's packaged in a way that's particularly uh, damaging to DNA. So the potential for, for cancer reduction, for genetic effects um, that are very long term and that may have a long latency period of some decades before they manifest is, is one of the aspects of, of exposure to this uh, this um, ubiquitous uh, hazard. The story isn't yet done and dusted on, on our understanding about radiation and health. And progressively the trend has been the more we know, the worse it looks. Um, radiation safety standards, maximum accepted limits for exposures for workers and the population at large, have historically always declined as they've been revised in the light of new evidence. They've never been increased. Um, one important recent finding, for example, that we really, it doesn't make sense on the basis of, of our conventional understanding about radiation is, is 
some very important data from Germany, a large study involving the National Cancer Registry for children over 25 years with extraordinarily detailed GPS-based place of residence data that mapped the risk of leukemia in young children under five in relation to how close they live to one of Germany's uh, 16 operating nuclear power plants. And the data were absolutely, um, from a scientific point of view, pretty much unassailable, um, with evidence of a almost 2.2 times increased risk, that's a more than doubling of the risk for childhood leukemia for children who live within five kilometres of a nuclear plant. Now that's not compatible with our current, the current basis for risk assessment about radiation and health. So it's just one example, but, I, but the more we learn about, about the effects of radiation, essentially, historically, the tendency has been to, for, for those effects to have previously been underestimated. And an effect was seen there, you can see the decay curve of the increased risk with distance. It, 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 it's elevated beyond baseline up to past 50 kilometres away. This is in normal operations, these are not accidents. Um, one of the other aspects of the nexus between um, nuclear reactors used for power and weapons is the potential for nuclear power plants to be targeted um, by terrorists in a war um, or damaged in, in, in disasters such as we've seen in Japan. And much of the attention in, in Japan has, app has appropriately been on a risk that I think was not really widely adequately appreciated prior to this kind of disaster, and that's the problem of spent fuel. Fuel sits in a reactor, undergoes fission for a year, a year and a half, roughly, gets more radioactive over time, um, and then it's changed periodically. Now that spent fuel is still intensely radioactive, intensely hot, has to be put basically in large swimming pools, has to be continuously cooled um, for several years before it can it's cooled sufficiently to be taken out and stored uh, on land in what's called dry cask storage. These structures have no containment, uh, unlike the reactor, and they contain very large amounts of long-lived radioactivity, in fact, usually more than is in the reactor. And it's these that have been a partic particular concern in relation to the, to the Fukushima tragedy. These are vulnerable to, to attack, um, and if these were targeted by nuclear explosions or even by conventional explosives, uh, then you could essentially have radiological consequences that could be similar to or worse than um, those of a nuclear weapon. I'll skip some. The other, one other piece of evidence that I really feel compelled to share with you is, is some recent scientific work uh, by Alan Robock and colleagues, um, mainly in the United States, but, but an international group, that really review what do we know now about this idea of nuclear winter that you might have heard about in the 1980s? The idea that, that multiple nuclear detonations on fuel-dense cities would produce large amounts of dense black smoke and soot injected into the atmosphere would cool and darken the surface of the Earth um, with major effects on, on food production and, uh, and on people. Um, this work was done in the early 80s um, with very simple by today's standards, climate models. We now have enormously more sophisticated, complex, interactive climate modelling that underpins our understanding of climate change. It is, you know, just dramatic advance compared with where we were three decades ago. So Alan and colleagues have looked at what happens 
just 100 Hiroshima-sized weapons, um, less than 0.03% of the global nuclear arsenal in terms of explosive power, were used on 100 cities in a regional conflict, say in South Asia, between India and Pakistan. And much of this is based on widespread fires that have occurred on other occasions, such as following earthquakes, following conventional bombings of cities in the Second World War. This is San Francisco after an earthquake in 2006, sorry, 1906, where essentially the whole city was, was, was either flattened or burned or bulbed. And of course in Hiroshima. And if a nuclear weapon is detonated on a city, then there would be simultaneous virtually ignition of large-scale fires that might coalesce and an awful lot of smoke that could be produced. Um, and oil, petroleum products, plastics, um, the things that cities are, are rich in and industrial facilities are rich in produce very carbon-dense black smoke. This is oil fires in the, the first war in Iran. Um, and the early work from the 1980s showed that, that even relatively modest, you know, a relatively tiny fraction of the nuclear weapons then existing um, if targeted on cities, hundred could produce very dramatic cooling uh, for a matter of months. Uh, almost as much cooling as a nuclear war that involved you know, most of the nuclear weapons that were then around. Um, and this work that was, including work that was led uh, by people at the CSIRO Division of Atmospheric Research in Melbourne, particularly Barry Peter, um, really in one of the first major international scientific collaborations that really preceded the IPCC, the global body that does work on climate change, um, identified just how severe these consequences would be, particularly for agriculture. So Alan and colleagues, um, and his work is available freely on his wonderful website, which I would really commend to you as an extraordinarily good resource, um, looked at, well, what would happen if we just used this sounds a lot, but 100 um, Hiroshima-sized weapons, a tiny fraction of the, of the current arsenal. And I won't talk about what that would produce in terms of direct casualties and injuries, which would obviously be severe. But particularly to just share with you the information about the climate effects from about 5 million tonnes of smoke that was estimated to be injected into the atmosphere. Um, clearly this would have major casualties, uh, major radioactive contamination, but it's the climatic effects that I just want to share particularly with you. And this is just a cartoon of how the smoke would spread for a war that starts on the 15th of May. Um, within a week it's basically spread pretty much over all of the inhabited areas of the planet um, in, both, in both hemispheres. It's really very rapid and then it just moves around um, and eventually covers Antarctica as well. Now I'll just start that again for you and look at here is where it goes, this is by height and you can see that within days most of this smoke, this is the boundary of where the kind of weather occurs down here, this is up in the stratosphere where the smoke is up there and there's no rain, it doesn't wash out quickly and very quickly this smoke is injected high into the atmosphere because it's heated and lofted by sunlight that propels it upwards more than as the fires actually initially carry it upwards. So this is shown a different way by latitude and over time. And you can see that basically this stuff persists um, for years. We're talking about the order of a decade. And if you look at the effects on 
on temperature in red and on rainfall in black, again you can see quite substantial drops persisting for around a decade. Um, this is that change in temperature compared with the largest volcanic eruption of the 20th century, the Mount Kinatubo eruption in the Philippines, which was much smaller um, and, and, and much shorter lived because it's, it's larger dust that settles. Um, if you put that on the scale of the global warming that we've seen in the last century and a half or so, it's, it's really climate change. In terms of its abruptness and its, and its scale, um, is really way beyond anything that's been recorded previously in human history. Now, these are just some other graphs that, sorry you can't see that, but these are changes in surface temperature. I just want to make the point that, that even though the global average is about one and a quarter degrees, in some of the major food growing regions, particularly in the continental land masses in the mid-latitudes, some of the drops in temperature are much larger, two, three, four degrees. And in rainfall, there are some, also some regional consequences that are reasonably severe. This may be a bit hard to see, but the estimate is the South Asian monsoon, on which about a billion and a half people depend, really, for most of their food, will probably be reduced by about 50%. Um, there would also be profound reductions in, in ozone in the upper atmosphere, um, particularly at, at higher latitudes, and again, these these drops would persist for the order of a decade. If you put all this together in terms of potential effects on agriculture, um, colder, shorter growing seasons, more frosts, um, including midsummer frosts, darker, it would be sort of cloudy, shaded type conditions pretty much the whole time, reduced rainfall, more ultraviolet, radioactivity, a whole bunch of other toxic chemicals, loss of a lot of the inputs of energy and fertiliser and fuel that are the underpinnings of modern agriculture. And lack of distribution, you can see the potential consequences for, for nutrition are really potentially severe. This is one example of, in Canada, showing the estimated reduction in the area in which wheat can be grown with relatively small drops in temperature. Currently, Malnutrition is thought to be a major factor in about half of the child under five deaths that occur globally. So that's roughly five million deaths already happening per year in children under five, where malnutrition is the primary cause or a major contributor. Um, it's currently estimated, it bobs around a little from year to year, but that there are just under a billion people who are chronically malnourished. Um, and world grain stocks at any one time, this is just a figure from a year ago, but it's usually a couple of months worth of supply. It's not a lot, actually. This is how much we use a year. This is, we're usually around 350 to 400 or a little bit more million tons of grain stored. That's really only a couple of months worth of grain. Studies of some of the major famines in history have shown, for example, the Great Bengal Famine of 1943, there was actually only a very tiny decline in food production, only about 5%. Um, less, there was in fact more food than some years when there wasn't a famine because people panicked. Um, the price, there was hoarding, the price went up, uh, and 3 million people died. So it's about access rather than just absolute availability. 
we've seen some dramatic suspensions of food, uh, of grain exports in, in result of the climatic events, droughts, um, and so forth in recent years. And there are about three to 400 million people globally who depend for more than 50% of their grain intake on imported grain. So if you put all that together, the, the billion people who are already hungry, those who are highly dependent on imports, um, it's pretty likely that severe disruption to global agriculture such as would follow um, a regional nuclear war here um, involving a tiny fraction of the world's nuclear weapons we have would, would cause starvation on a scale that we haven't um, ever seen before historically. Um, what's happened in this in situation in the past is major epidemics of infectious disease that, would, that people are more vulnerable to um, and obviously conflict both within and between countries around uh, dwindling food reserves would, would, would pose an additional uh, risk and, and even potential further use of nuclear weapons. So I think what this work does um, is, is really highlight just how imperative it is to prevent any use of nuclear weapons and that this really is a global issue for everybody. It doesn't matter where nuclear weapons are first used. Um, even regions distant uh, would be profoundly affected by, by these climatic effects. Um, and so I think more than anything else, this, this work has, has highlighted just, just how, how our vulnerability um, to, to these kinds of effects is shared. Um, I'll skip a couple of these slides. Um, so what will it mean to, to get rid of nuclear weapons? Um, I think we're really on the cusp of a, of a major historic opportunity, probably the best opportunity certainly since the end of the Cold War, perhaps ever, um, to make serious progress towards nuclear abolition. Um, the urgency has really kind of gone out of it a little bit in the last, in the last year. Um, but if one thinks about the elements um, that will need to underpin a world free of nuclear weapons, then there's really, there's really uh, I think, three aspects. One is clearly getting rid of the, the vast stockpiles that remain. There are still 22,400 <coughs> nuclear weapons in the world, 95% um, of them owned by the United States and, and Russia. Um, getting rid of those in a phased, verifiable manner um, will clearly be crucial and reducing the potential the likelihood of their use in the meantime. But we also need to prevent uh, new countries or potentially even non-state actors acquiring uh, nuclear weapons. And that both of those things, to, to achieve and sustain those, will require that access to, to fissile materials, to the material that can be used to make nuclear weapons be, be um, reduced and then eliminated. And that means highly enriched uranium and plutonium. Albert Einstein is for me a, a really continuing source of extraordinary wisdom and, and inspiration. And a couple of things he said I think are, are really um, abiding in their, their relevance and their potency. Um, uh, and conceptually our approach to, to nuclear weapons is still as if they were just bigger weapons of, you know, of a standard kind, as if they were, they were not something entirely different. Um, 
from anything else that, that we have. And and really his his emphasis on on the fact that there is that this technology exists, the knowledge to how to build nuclear weapons can't they can't be uninvented. Um, but they can they can be abolished and that that, that absolutely requires um, the pressure of, 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 of people around the world um, in combination with with the leadership of governments. So how might we get there? And um, let me make just a couple of observations and suggestions for you in an Australian context to wind up. There are a couple of significant opportunities uh, that thus far remain unfulfilled in terms of their potential. Not many people know about it, but one of the early things that Kevin Wright did when he took on the Prime Ministership in 2007 was ask the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties that's a standing committee that involves members from both houses of parliament, from all parties, to examine how Australia could contribute more effectively to nuclear disarmament. And they produced a report that not only contains some excellent recommendations, including that Australia should support a nuclear weapons convention, but it was unanimous. So here's a real political gift. Here's an opportunity to, to take this out of the partisan political bear pit of adversarial party politics and take it into a more humanitarian space. That potential hasn't yet really been realised. So I would prioritise a, a couple of areas. I think I think the most important thing, in order of importance for, for me anyway, um, I think the most effective thing that Australia could do would be really to, to walk the talk. We call on in every UN forum, in every international forum, we call on the nuclear weapon states to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in their security policies. But we don't do the same ourselves. Um, and I think if Australia could work towards a nuclear weapon-free military policy, one that doesn't countenance Australian facilities or personnel being involved in possible use of nuclear weapons, um, that may involve military alliances, but that exclude use of nuclear weapons in a um, and particularly if that were done in concert with other United States allies, I think that could be enormously influential and provide great support for the disarmament agenda of the Obama administration and less comfort to those who oppose disarmament in the United States on the basis that we mustn't upset or frighten the allies who, who rely on our continued possession of nuclear weapons. The second is that um, our uranium mining currently under the really very inadequate safeguards regime that's in place globally. Um, we really can't be certain that now or in the future that doesn't contribute uh, to the potential weapons development. Um, there are a couple of ways. Um, it would certainly be much easier to achieve and sustain a world free of nuclear weapons if nuclear power were being phased out. But shy of that, there are a couple of important ways in which, um, while nuclear power continues to be used, the proliferation dangers could be reduced dramatically. The most important of them, I believe, would be to stop reprocessing of spent nuclear fuel to extract plutonium, because there's no economic case for doing that. Um, and it doesn't really help in terms of the waste management. Reprocessing is almost unsafeguardable. And the second is con to control enrichment. There are currently no restrictions on countries' uh, right or ability to acquire the means to enrich uranium. And if you can enrich uranium to reactor grade, then you have everything you need, um, materials, expertise, facilities, to be able to enrich it a little further to weapons grade. So 
uranium enrichment is going to have to be curtailed. It's going to have to be something that happens only in a very small number of very tightly controlled um, internationally supervised facilities. It's not, it can't be a free-for-all. And those two areas, I think, Australia could address. Not exporting uranium to nuclear weapon states would be, would be one way of also strengthening the, 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 the avoidance of the possibility of exports contributing to proliferation. And I just want to underscore that I haven't seen recent figures, so I looked them up uh, this week. In 2009, which is the last year that figures are available for, uranium and thorium together contributed less than two-thirds of one percent to Australia's total mineral and fuel exports and less than a third of one percent of total exports. It's less than one half of one percent of BHP Billiton's record profits and it's about 20 percent of the profits on the Olympic Dam, Malaya, Roxby Downs. It's really not um, you know, something that would cause major economic dislocation to forego. It's actually lowered down as an export commodity than ferrous uh, scrap and waste. I kid you not. <laughs> it's about on par with wine and cheese. <laughs> Third, we could be seriously investing in research and consultation, preparing the way for the comprehensive negotiating the comprehensive legal architecture to eliminate and outlaw nuclear weapons that we will eventually need. This is big and complex task. Let's get started now. Um, there are regional countries with whom we could collaborate um, who would probably greatly welcome um, that and, and the South Pacific Nuclear Weapons Free Zone might provide a very good forum to work with Pacific Island countries and New Zealand on that. Um, that would be something that we could do that Jay Scott recommended. Um, and there are some opportunities of the moment. There's a new parliament with a whole bunch of new, new members, both in the House and the Senate. Um, there are political opportunities coming up, for example, the biennial ALP National Conference in November of this year. Um, there are some significant developments in civil society. For me, probably one of the most exciting of the last year has been the Red Cross movement, really embracing, uh, making the humanitarian case for the elimination of nuclear weapons as a major priority for the, for the Red Cross movement. And Australian Red Cross has picked that up in a major way. They are a very important partner. They were critical in the campaigns to, to, for the successful treaties to abolish landmines and cluster munitions. Um, and if you know any people with an order of Australia, we're currently um, in collecting uh, their signatures from those awardees and on a very simple statement that calls for, that supports a nuclear weapons convention and calls for a nuclear weapon free defence policy for Australia. Um, it includes about, there are about 150 signatories at the moment. They included several former heads of the Australian Defence Force, military leaders, a couple of governor generals, three former prime ministers. Um, if you know anybody uh, who has an order of Australia, please invite them to, to sign them the statement that will be presented to the Prime Minister in, in a couple of months' time. So I've probably taken more of your time than I should. I, I, I thank you for your interest and, uh, and commend the, the broad and inclusive uh, and open campaign that ICANN is that 
works basically through partner through trying to support and encourage and assist partner organisations to make this uh, 